Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So, um, good morning. My name is Juan Mitzafrido. I live in New York. Uh, I am uh, what we described as a friend of the Beit Midrash, the Valley Beit Midrash, a friend of uh, Pardes uh, for many, many years. And it's an honor today to uh, present uh, Rabbi Leon Morris. Uh, the most straight phrase that people say, he really doesn't need an introduction. <laughs> but uh, uh, he's president of the Pardes Institute of uh, Jewish Religion in Israel, uh, where we just had our 50th uh, anniversary uh, celebration in, in Yerushalayim a couple of months ago. Uh, he has served as rabbi in Sag Harbor. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Skirball Center for Adult Jewish Learning and uh, has been a member of uh, the Hebrew Union College for many, many years. Uh, among the things that his resume uh, shows always is that uh, Rabbi Leon has taught at Orthodox, at Conservative and Reform Institutions, and as somebody who has learned with many, many, for many, many years with Rabbi Leon, I think that uh, uh, many of the Orthodox say, like, well, you mean he's not Orthodox? And the Conservatives say, sorry, and the Conservatives say, yeah, well, he's not Conservative? And the Reform people say, well, he's not Reform. <laughs> so anyway, he is a, he's a true Jew and a true teacher. Um, uh, I'd like my introduction just uh, briefly now. I said, um, exactly 40 years ago, on December 14th of 1972, during the Apollo 17 mission, two U.S. astronauts became the last man to walk on the moon. The lyrics of the song Walking on the Moon by the British rock group The Police state that giant steps are what you take when you're walking on the moon. So on this anniversary date of the walk on the moon, it is only fitting that today's speaker would be a rabbi and educator who has truly taken giant steps uh, to propel Jewish leadership and Jewish learning to a higher plane. Having almost exhausted any possibility of further puns in this, with this introduction, I remind, the, I remind the audience that the title of today's shiur, Nothing But the Truth, uh, Balancing an Embrace of Tradition and Personal Integrity, uh, is that in order to walk on the moon, you also need balance. So uh, welcome, uh, Rabbi Morris, and the microphone is yours. Thank you so much, Juan. I'm, uh, I'm really touched both by your sponsorship and your, your beautiful words and your, your generous words. And we're so proud that you're also part of our Pardes family. So I think by the associative principle, then we're, we're related to Valley Beit Midrash because we're related to you and and uh, Rabbi Shmuley and his team are related to you. So thank you for that. I, I wanna say what, uh, what a pleasure and what an honor it is to be here. And I particularly wanna say that um, I'm so inspired by what Rabbi Shmuley has built and by his, uh, his educational leadership and his social activism leadership and that among all of those responsibilities, he finds time to be a prolific writer and to be teaching the Jewish world that way and raising a family. So uh, uh, he is the Superman of 
uh, the American Jewish Rabbinate, and it's just really a pleasure uh, to be here. I want to start by uh, sharing something about my uh, religious tension that runs through my own life, and I imagine it runs through the lives of many of you, which is that from the earliest age, from the time I was eight years old, I was always drawn to Jewish practice and Jewish learning and Jewish life. And yet for most of us living in modernity or post-modernity, we are reclaiming Jewish life on our own terms. And part of what that means is we're trying to remain true to who we are and what we believe. And at the same time, we want to connect ourselves in a deeper and deeper way to Jewish life and Jewish sources. And so we're in this, uh, we're in this tension that's a healthy tension. One way to explain it is if we use this phrase that many people do of my Jewish life, I think the question that we're struggling with today is how much of my Jewish life is the my part and how much of my Jewish life is the Jewish part? And how do I balance those? How do I remain true to what I know and what I've experienced in the world and connect myself more deeply with Jewish tradition. Now, like most contemporary questions, as new as that question seems to us, uh, it's not new. And we're going to look today, and the bulk of our class today will be on one relatively short Talmudic text, which is among my favorite texts. And it's incredibly radical. And it's one of those texts that makes me both surprised and proud that it was included in the Talmud. Uh, but to get there, we have to set the stage a little bit. So we're not gonna jump right into the text. Uh, I think that Alex will share a source sheet with those of you who want it as a PDF. And I'll share the screen. Uh, I'll share the screen a moment with uh, those of you that want to follow along that way. And of course, you can adjust the size of uh, all of us and the size of the text by sliding that bar uh, to the right or to the left. So I want to begin, uh, I want to begin where, uh, with something that's familiar to, to many of us, which is the first bracha of the Amidah, the first the first blessing of 19 blessings, uh, originally 18 blessings, which form the basis of every Jewish prayer service. And uh, on Shabbat, there are seven, and it formed this particular bracha is the first blessing of uh, all of the different forms of the Amidah. And we often call this the Avot, or in uh, egalitarian synagogues, the Avot and Imahot. And like much of the Sidor, which is an anthology of, uh, of passages, largely many of which are drawn from the Tanakh, um, one of the key phrases in this very first paragraph of the Amidah uh, doesn't come from this. The rabbis, the members of the Great Assembly, the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, who are credited with shaping the 
general outline of the Amidah and other parts of the Sidur, they used a phrase that I think will sound familiar to many of you. So we read in this blessing, this is source number one, Baruch Hashem, Eloheinu, Velohe Avoteinu, Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov. And egalitarian synagogues would also add the names of the matriarchs. And this is the phrase that I want to get to. Ha'el, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vehanora, the great, mighty, and awesome God. So very familiar to us. But again, the members of the great assembly were taking that phrase from the Torah itself. This is source number two, in which the words are none other than the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moses, our teacher, where Moses says, in uh, Deuteronomy, Sefer Devarim, this is, as you know, the book of Deuteronomy is largely a series of long speeches that Moses gives to the children of Israel before they enter the land of Israel. And he describes God using that familiar phrase. He says, Ki Hashem Elohechem Hu, Elohecha Elohim Va'adoneha Adonim, Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora. Asher lo yisafanim v'lo yikach shochad. For the eternal your God is a God supreme and Lord supreme, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who shows no favor and takes no bribe. Now, when we get to the Talmudic text that I want us to study together, the Talmud notices something really interesting, which is that when you go through the Hebrew Bible, from this first use of this phrase, ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanorah, until you get to one of the last books of the Tanakh, that phrase does not appear again. It doesn't appear again until we get to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, in which Ezra the prophet is saying, Ezra the scribe is saying, Ve'ata Eloheinu, and now our God, Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora, the great, mighty, and awesome God. So, who was Nehemiah? Who was Ezra? Um, Ezra and Nehemiah were those leaders of the Jewish people who returned from Babylonian exile uh, around the year 516 BCE. Um, and they went to reestablish the Jewish homeland and ultimately to rebuild the temple. Um, they are the beginning of the group of pre-rabbis, proto-rabbis, that we referred to earlier as the members of the Great Assembly, the Anshe Knesset Hagadolah. They're the ones who are credited with writing that first blessing of the Amidah and a lot of other blessings of the Amidah. And so the question that we're going to be occupying ourselves with is if Moses said that one of the ways that we talk about God is to call, to say about God, Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanorah, the great, mighty, and awesome God, how can uh, how can no one else have used that phrase until we get to the end of the Hebrew Bible 
and the return from Babylonian exile. What about all the prophets who lived mostly before and a few straddled the Babylonian exile? What about them? Um, how could no one else in the Hebrew Bible have used this phrase? So that's our question. And the question will relate to this bigger question of uh, how do we uh, how do we mind the gap? How do we manage the tension between who we are and our desire to connect ourselves to Jewish tradition? So here's this great Talmudic text. Uh, from Yoma 69b. As Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said, why are the sages of those generations called the members of the great assembly? Uh, in a way, I think Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi is asking, what makes the members of the great assembly great? Now, in truth, great modifies the assembly, but I think he's saying what was so great about them? And the answer that's given is a phrase that uh, to this day is commonly used in, uh, in Hebrew, that they returned God's crown to its former glory. Um, you'll forgive me for this, but in essence, the expression means they made God's crown great again. They brought back the old time greatness of God. Theirs was a conservative project in the sense of conserving something that had been or reclaiming something that had been lost. And then they're going to explain why. How is it that the members of the Great Assembly restored God's crown to its glory? Moses came and said in his prayer, we saw this in Deuteronomy, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, Ha'el, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vahanora. Jeremiah, who uh, prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 and then experiences it and goes into exile, Jeremiah, according to this Gemara, came and looked at the world, looked at his world. And he said, non-Jews, and here we're really talking about the enemies of the Jews, the followers of Nebuchadnezzar, are carousing in God's sanctuary. Where is God's awesomeness, he's asking. He's seeing, he's looking at the temple, uh, perhaps just before its destruction, perhaps in the moment of its destruction. And he's saying this place that was the holiest place on earth this place that was so invested in holiness that the one time of year when the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies, he had to have a rope tied to his leg because if he died in there, uh, he nobody would be able to go into that space to get him. So the rope would pull him out. And that holy space, the, the navel of the world, that now has just enemies of the Jews just uh, informally partying and walking around in God's sanctuary. How can I say that God is awesome? And they're doing a very close reading of a text from Jer Jeremiah in which, this is source number three, 
in which he almost says the quote that Moses said in Deuteronomy, but he leaves out a word. He says, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor Hashem tzvaot shemo, the great, mighty, and he doesn't say awesome, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And the Gemara, the Talmud, assumes that this was a deliberate omission of Jeremiah based on the fact that he's looking at the destroyed temple and he's saying, how can I possibly say that God is awesome? They're assuming that Jeremiah deliberately left out the phrase Hanora when speaking about God. He couldn't bring himself. His own integrity prevented him from calling God awesome in that moment in time. And then we have Daniel. Daniel's living in Babylonian exile, Daniel the prophet. And Daniel came and said, Gentiles are enslaving God's children. Where is God's might? I'm living in Babylonia. We are, we are so far from our homeland. And we are so far from a sense of autonomy and self-determination. And how can I say under these circumstances that God is mighty? And we see, we see that sure enough, Daniel also leaves out a word. The et palala lashem elohai, the et vada, the omra ana adonai ha'el hagadol hagibor vahat. Sorry, ha'el hagadol vehanora. See how the word just came out. He didn't say hagibor. He didn't say that God is mighty. He left out that word, and the rabbis of the Talmud assume that this was a deliberate omission, that he sees, he's experiencing himself Babylonian exile, and he cannot say under those circumstances that, that God is mighty. And so the members of the Great Assembly come back, and remember, uh, this is the Talmud now sort of asking, well, how is it that the members of the Great Assembly, how is it that Ezra, the first of the members of the Great Assembly in the book of Nehemiah, is able to bring back the original formulation with all of those adjectives? How is it that they come and say, no, God is ha'el, ha'gadol, ha'gibor, v'hanora. So here we're in the second paragraph. The members of the Great Assembly came and said, on the contrary, this is the might of God's might, that God conquers God's inclination and that God exercises patience toward the wicked. So uh, for those of you for whom it's familiar, Pirkei Avot's question of Ezehu Gibor HaKovesh Et Yitzro, who is the mighty one, the one who controls his passions. So here they're saying, well, if that's true of human beings, God is the mightiest one. And the sign of God's might is that God could destroy the Babylonians and doesn't. And I think the implication here is if God, with, God is such a God of compassion that God withholds God's might to punish the Babylonians, how much more forgiving will he be of his people? 
And, uh, and here, the Talmud is imagining the members of the great assembly arguing back to Daniel and saying, no, Daniel, it's a matter of perspective. You see the Jews in exile in Babylonia, and you can't bring yourself to say mighty. But we, members of the great assembly, we think that it is precisely a sign of God's might that God doesn't destroy the Babylonians, that God's, God's might is found in God's chesed, in God's loving kindness, in God's compassion. And now they have to address, they have to address Jeremiah, not saying hanorah. Jeremiah left out the word awesome. And so they say, and here's God's awesomeness. Were it not for the awesomeness of the Holy One, blessed be he, how could one people, the Jewish people, survive among the nations? The members of the great assembly are, uh, the members of the great assembly are, are arguing back. You wanna, you wanna see God's awesomeness? God's awesomeness is not compromised by uh, is not compromised by the fact that the holiest place in the world is now being trampled by our enemies. God's awesomeness is we give testimony to it in order uh, we give testimony to it by seeing that God enabled us to survive, that we're even having this discussion is a sign of God's awesomeness. And then, and I'm going to get to this amazing, amazing uh, conclusion of the text, uh, the Gemara asks, okay, but what about Daniel and Jeremiah? How could they have uprooted an ordinance instituted by Moses? Now here, I want us to appreciate that the way that this sugya, the way that this passage of the Talmud is constructed is that the rabbis have really boxed themselves into, the, into a corner. On the one hand, they've said, the members of the great assembly were amazing and they deserve the term great because they restored God's crown to its glory. They brought back the old time religion and the old way of speaking about God that Moses himself established. And Jeremiah left left out a word. Jeremiah left out that God is awesome. Daniel left out that God is mighty. And they box themselves into a corner because Jeremiah and Daniel are prophets. They're not schleppers. And the rabbis of the Talmud can't say at the end of the day that what Jeremiah and Daniel did was wrong. And so the Gemara is asking, how could they do this? And uh, I love this tension that they've created. Rabbi Elazar said they did this because they knew of the Holy One, blessed be he, that he is truthful and hates a lie, and they could not speak falsely about him. This is, uh, this is an amazing, amazing passage, and the sugya ends there with this tension. How could they have left out the word awesome? How could they have left out the word mighty? Because they know that God is truth. I don't know if we have any Brandeis uh, alumni on the, on the call, but Brandeis chose as its seal 
the word truth because the Midrash says that's God's seal. They figured if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for Brandeis University. Truth is what God is. And so Jeremiah and Daniel were saying, I can't lie. I can't speak falsely. And in my own estimation, God at this moment in the world in which I'm living and prophesying, God is not awesome or God is not powerful. And we're left with this Gemara, which is uh, just left in tension like this. We're celebrating the members of the Great Assembly for their contributions. We're celebrating them for bringing back the original language which Moses established. And yet we're also saying, Jeremiah and Daniel, they had to speak their truth. And I think this is our tension. This is the tension that I want to explore with you. Jeremiah and Daniel had an inherited text and an inherited tradition of how to speak about God. And yet they mostly used that language, but they couldn't use all of it. And they, uh, they had to be true to who they were. They had to speak their truth. And they had to navigate the way that I think many of us have to navigate this balance between wanting to connect ourselves to this amazing tradition of depth and wanting to be true to ourselves. This is how the rabbis dealt with this particular tension. The rabbis of the Talmud let that tension into the Gemara. And in a way, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to say that the members of the great assembly are great because that original wording is the wording we want. We want religion. We want a life of faith to be a project of restoration. And at the same time, we need to, because God is a God of truth, we need to speak our truth. So I want to look at a few contemporary texts, one of which will be a song that I want to share with you. I want to look at a few contemporary texts that, that really explore how do we mind that gap between speaking our truth and being responsible heirs to a great tradition. And so uh, while I sign back on, uh, I'll keep this connected, but I'm just going to ask uh, either uh, Rabbi Shmuley or Alex to just read that next text, which is um, a prayer that's in the New Reform High Holy Day Machzor, the New Reform prayer book. And this is meant to be a, um, a contemporary confession of the high priest. We were talking just a few moments ago about the temple 
and the Temple Mount and the high priest going into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. So the, the, the high priest makes three confessions when he's in the Holy of Holies. And this is a creative prayer for our confession today in our times, uh, written by Shelley and Janet Martyr and included in this, uh, in this prayer book. And before, uh, before Rav Shmuley reads this, I, I want us to be, as we're listening to this, to be asking the question of how does this mind that tension? How is this tension that we're talking about expressed? What kinds of feelings and what kinds of words come to mind uh, when we think of uh, when we think of this tension? Okay. Okay. My wonderful colleague Alex Kramer is going to read for us. Okay, I will read it. Just to confirm, is this where it says a new confession? Ours? Am I in the right spot? Yes. We confess in our generation, faith is partial and frayed, like an old talus, threadbare and torn. Faith has been worn thin by doubts, torn by ambivalence. What do we see when we look at its knotted fringe? Reminders of mitzvot or something tangled coming apart, a reminder of all our misgivings? We confess in our generation, love of Torah is tenuous, indifference to communal obligation profound. We allow our differences to divide us. Resentments fester, and a small people is made smaller by disunity and strife. We fail to notice the signs of your presence in our world, and we forget to lament your absence from our lives. Uncertainty too easily turns to skepticism. We allow hard questions to consign religion to irrelevance. Our forebears called you Tzur Yisrael, Tzur Olamim, Rock of Israel, rock of all time and space. We confess our longing for faith that sustained them. We confess our need and desire to attach our hopes to theirs. So um, you can hear me now, right? Great. So this is an incredible, uh, I think it's an incredible piece of contemporary liturgy. And, and I want to just ask, uh, ask you if you had to just to put in the chat, one or two words that characterizes the feeling and the sense of this prayer in terms of the gap, in terms of how do we how do we explain, how do we experience the gap between our own truth, our contemporary truth, and uh, the demands of Jewish tradition. But so Nancy says balancing. I think that's a I think that's a, a great word. Tragic, Lauren. There is something um, there's something sad about this. There's something. This is after all a confession uh, of how distant we've become from the tradition. Uh, there's something. There's a desire, like the desire of the rabbis, to bring back the old language. In a way, the prayer is. At least to me, it seems to be saying, we wish we could bring back that old language, but we can't. Uh, Michelle, trying to keep the faith, but with different modern understandings or uncertainty of an absolute God. Beautiful, beautiful. Oy voy for our people, says Lauren. Um, so I think there is something of that. You ask God for the ball of string to lead you through the labyrinth 
and slay the Minotaur. Okay, I love it. I love it. So um, these are wonderful responses. It's interesting when I have taught this text with, um, with young people, with college students and young adults, uh, they really, by and large, they tend to hate this. They, they don't like the idea that we're lamenting that somehow our contemporary religious life doesn't hold a candle to those who came before us. This idea of, well, they used to be able to call, call God Sor Olamim, and now we're sort of reduced to doing the best we can. Uh, they really don't like that. And yet I think for many of us, uh, this does speak deeply of something about how we live with this tension. I wanna look at another text with you. And now I think I can share screen once again. This is by a writer named Catherine Madsen, um, who writes a lot and critiques a great deal about contemporary liturgy. And um, she is challenging a lot of contemporary liturgy uh, prayer in both Jewish and Protestant circles on the basis of, of how banal it often appears. And again, I'm bringing this in because this is a discussion about how much can we substitute our true words for the inherited words that we may no longer believe. So I wanna read this with you. Uh, here, she's talking about the most famous piyut of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, Unatana Tokef, uh, made famous by Leonard Cohen, but made famous centuries before by uh, the editors of the Mahzor, maybe Rab, uh, Rabbi Amnon, uh, probably not. But this is the prayer of you know, who shall live and who shall die. And I'll tell you, I was one of the four editors of the new reform High Holiday Mahzor, and we had um, we had colleagues and lay leaders petitioning us, please do not include that in this new machzor. It's so hurtful and it's so painful to think that everything is in God's book. And for people sitting in the congregation who have experienced enormous loss, this is very uh, alienating. And to that critique, uh, Catherine Madsen offers the following. The fantasy of the book of life and God's judgment is memorable, but the extraordinary aspect of the prayer is its emotional impress. Any of us might die of anything, anytime. When? Now or later? With or without warning? Who by stroke and who by cancer? Who by famine and who by plague? Who by collision and who by explosion? We are grass, glass, shadow, cloud, Adam. Certainly it is imaginary. How else but through imagination do you talk about death in the community where you spend your life? With the people you know, the people you do business with, the people who help you, love you, employ you, exasperate you. Indiscretion and fable are forms of delicacy. They create an atmosphere in which painful subjects can be raised without speaking of specific deaths 
that have wounded the people you know. The Unatanatokef was written in a time when fear and sorrow were closer to the surface of public life than they are now. But in private life, we still know that security is a thin veneer. So this is, uh, this is an argument really like the argument of the members of the Great Assembly. They said to Jeremiah, you can't say that God is awesome? Well, try harder. Don't take it so literally. They say to uh, Daniel, you say that God is not mighty? Well, there's a certain kind of imaginative move here with this inherited language. And don't, don't, um, don't dismiss the role of imagination. Imagination allows us to say things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to say. I want to share with you this quote. I apologize for the typo in his last name. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, philosopher, writer, uh, Christian apologist. Um, this is also, I think, in the camp of the members of the Great Assembly. He wrote, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I love this. Um, this is saying, you know, you are looking at the reality from your vantage point, and that is good and important. But what about? the vote that all of those who came before you get? What about their insights and their truth? We're not going to have time because I want to open this up to questions. We won't have time to do all of these, but I do want to share with you uh, the most, uh, I guess I should say compared to the Gemara, the second most uh, significant text uh, that we'll explore tonight. This is a song written by Kobe Oz who is a, um, he's a songwriter and singer. He was a lead singer for the Israeli group uh, TPEX that were a big hit in the 90s. And uh, he's a radio personality today in Israel. And he is part of this amazing uh, renaissance of Jewish life that's happening in Israel, largely among those who don't call themselves religious. Uh, this sort of secular movement to reclaim the Jewish bookshelf. Now, Kobe Oz uh, was the uh, grandchild of a Tunisian python, a Tunisian uh, rabbi and writer of liturgical poems that are sung. Uh, his grandfather's name was uh, Nisi Masika. And he was very close to his grandfather. His grandfather made Aliyah to Israel from Tunisia, uh, Kobe was close with him, and years after his grandfather's death, when Kobe is already a significant popular singer in Israel, he finds a shoebox filled with cassette tapes of his grandfather singing these beautiful religious songs of Piyutim. And the songs are classic religious expressions, like we find here, you are the Lord my God, you gather the scattered of Israel, gather our scattered from the four corners of the earth, send us the Messiah, 
And Kobe could have done what a lot of contemporary Jewish musical artists have done, which is to record their rendition of an inherited piyut, one of these liturgical poems, or to write a new musical setting to use the words of an inherited liturgical piyut. But what he does instead is he records a duet with his deceased grandfather. And his grandfather is on a, a cassette tape in the background, and he composes a song around it. And he doesn't sing his grandfather's piyut. He writes his own contemporary song. He's saying kind of in the spirit of Daniel and Jeremiah, that was my grandfather's truth, but that's not my truth. I have to speak my truth. And yet he's preserving and really amplifying the words of his grandfather, bringing the words and the voice of his grandfather to tens of thousands of people who wouldn't have heard this piyut before. And so this too is about one way in which we can maintain this tension between the inherited tradition and speaking our own truth. But I'm conscious of the time and I want to open it up to your comments. Um, Great. Great. Oh, Thank you shot, so please. much, friends. Feel free to type in the chat or feel free to unmute yourselves now. Why don't we, in the interest of time, take a few questions or comments at once, and then Rabbi Morris can kind of close up. So Jeremiah knew exactly why the Jewish people were suffering through what they were. And everybody, you know, and people who were in the Babylonian um, exile knew. I mean, there was a reason God warned them, Jeremiah warned them. Isaiah warned them. So I don't see how they can see that Hashem wasn't mighty because Hashem didn't want them to be back in Eretz Israel and he didn't want the temple to stay. So that's my question. It's a great point, right? This particular Talmudic text doesn't seem to really uh, revolve around the classic notion that we were exiled because of our sins. Um, or suggest that even if we were exiled because of our sins at this moment, how can you say that God is mighty? How can you say that God is awesome? Look, there's also the possibility, and I think maybe this is more consonant with your comment, Lauren, that you know a prophet has to know his audience. And now that the destruction happened, as opposed to warning them to change their ways, a prophet needs to provide consolation. And a prophet needs to know that if I, in this moment, talk about God's awesomeness, it will turn people away. So maybe it was strategic, but I think you're raising a fantastic, a fantastic question. Great. I see Aglaia. Aglaia has her hand. Aglaia, hi. Hi. I'm going to take a little bit of the not exactly opposite view of Lawrence, but just on the, you know, argued from the other side um, a little bit. When, okay, a lot of the time that people feel really uncomfortable with the idea that God is also accountable for his own creation or that he might hold himself accountable or what is God's accountability at all and everything. I mean, it is kind of an uncomfortable thought though. But, okay, when you're talking about Daniel and Jeremiah and everything though, there might be also this whole, well, why did you, why did you even create us in the first place if, you know, knowing that we're going to screw up and all of this other stuff, though? So 
I mean, it is an uncomfortable thought that is God also accountable for people and the fact that we screw up all of the time. I mean, this is a history professor talking also, but that we screw up all the time. So in other words, though, telling the truth to God about, I don't feel necessarily that you're mighty or that you're awesome right now. He already knows you're thinking it anyway. So mm -hmm. should you just go on ahead and express it? And so that's why I put also Count of Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm. At the end, Alexander Dumas is talking. He just says, you know, God, I mean, as a people, though, you know, like Israel is about struggling with God. And he makes this Alexander Dumas, who's not Jewish, though, but he makes this comment about God doesn't want you to just be docile and just do everything as, you know, like, like do what you're told all the time. He wants you to fight back. So could we also look at it from that perspective? Well, I love that. I love those comments. And I think there is something here about like, what's the degree of human agency mm -hmm. and that the source of human agency, right? In a way, we could argue that the source of the version of praise to God that Jeremiah and Daniel shape is made possible by the strength that God gives to human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a little bit of a, of a conundrum there, I think. Yeah. I, I want to, I know we are basically, yeah, uh, Rabbi Shuli, basically out of time. I want to share one idea. We're not going to get to the text, but I'll just give it over orally. And this is uh, the last source, which is by my friend and colleague, Michael Marmer. And he brings a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, who says, going back to that first blessing of the Amidah, why does it say our God and God of our ancestors? And he basically, the Baal Shem Tov, basically says, you know what? There's different kinds of people in the world. There's the Our God people who really want to speak from their own experience uh, and the moment in which they're living. And there are the God of our ancestors people who want to rely on that old inherited language. And we need both. We need both kinds of people in the world. We need both kinds of Jews, we need both phrases in the Amidah. And um, I think in a way that Baal Shem Tov is doing a little bit of what Kobe Oz was doing, who says, I want you to hear the words of my grandfather. They're not my words. I can't say them, but I can record, I can amplify them. I can put them on my album and I can compose my own words. And even so, He's acknowledging there's something lost. There's something kitschy when I say thank you in my language. My grandfather had a deeper, richer language, but that's not mine. And I just love this tension. And I hope that um, I hope that the texts that we studied today are a kind of affirmation of how productive and fruitful this kind of tension can be. And to be living inside that Gemara text that's negotiating between the members of the Great Assembly on the one side. Great. Thank, thank you so much, Rabbi Morris, for joining us today. Such yes. a pleasure to be with you. It was delightful to learn with you, Rabbi Morris. Thank you so much. And thank you, HTA, uh, for your partnership. And thank you to our dear friend Juan Mesa Fredel for, uh, for sponsoring this session today. We hope, friends, you'll continue to learn with us um, every day, every week. You can. Tomorrow we'll be with Dr. Devorah Steinmetz. Teaching darkness will envelope, uh, envelop me. Meditations on Hanukkah and winter. Um, I'm also giving a class tomorrow on Hanukkah uh, through my Jewish learning. You can get that link through us if you'd like. And um, 
so much more. Thank you so much. Good night in Israel and have a great day in Canada and the U.S. Thank you so much. Great to be with all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.